And this morning our gospel reading is from Matthew 19, verses 1 through 8. Uh, and then we will look at Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Both of these are passages that uh, typically stir up quite a bit of controversy and what does that mean and how do we deal with that. Um, and we're just not going to address it today. So <laughs> we are going to read these uh, and we can talk about that at some uh, point if you want to discuss that with me. We're going to read them. And we're reading both of these uh, for the same purpose, and that is they both are quoting from the passage that we are going to be talking about today. And there's a reason for that, and we will get into that. But for now, uh, this is uh, Matthew 19, 1 through 8. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear, or that we would be those who uh, are shaped more by your word than by all the other words that are trying to shape us. God, we do pray uh, that by your word and by your spirit, we would be changed and transformed even more today into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Matthew 19, 1 through 8 was when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And turning to Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Paul, in uh, looking at how the gospel of Christ uh, changes everything and in all of our relationships, says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands. Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but this was kind of a weird week in lots of ways. And the uh, stuff going on in Washington this week has been particularly 
odd. <laughs> and there are two things. I'm not going to talk about this for very long. Um, not because I don't have plenty I'd like to say about it, but because that's not what I'm here for. <laughs> I am here to tell you what the Word of God says, and that's what we're going to go to. But I do want to bring up uh, two things that happened in Washington this week that were uh, weird. Uh, one is the, the man who opened the Congress, session of Congress with a prayer that ended by saying, amen, and a woman. You heard this, right? <laughs> you heard about this? And uh, it, yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, anybody that has even a passing understanding of where that word comes from, amen, knows it has nothing to do with male and female kind of stuff, which we will be talking about male and female kind of stuff later this morning. One of the reasons I bring it up. The other reason is I was asked by a friend of mine if it bothered me that he prayed that. And my response was no. And he said, you've got to be kidding. That's terrible that someone would do that. And I said, no, it doesn't bother me at all. And the reason it doesn't bother me is because of everybody I've heard, there is not a single person I've heard that took him seriously. If people had said, yes, that's what we ought to be saying, that would bother me. <laughs> but the fact that everybody recognized it as clearly ridiculous, good. <laughs> so it doesn't, doesn't bother me. That shows that we, are, uh, we still have some, some kind of sense uh, left as uh, people. Uh, the other thing that happened, of course, was on Wednesday when there were protests outside the Capitol that uh, some people involved in that pushed past police and past barricades, went into the Capitol, broke into the Capitol, and uh, had issues of major disrespect uh, for the people and the place, as well as uh, issues of vandalism and even some violence. And um, yeah, that one bothered me a lot more. That one bothered me a lot more. And uh, the reason that I feel like it needs... Uh, to be addressed, and the reason it bothers me more is that there are some people who look at that and have said, yes, that is right and good and what we should be doing as Christians. That bothers me. That is not right. In fact, here's how uh, clear it ought to be that it was not right to do that, is this may be the first thing I've ever seen President Trump and Speaker Pelosi agree on, <laughs> is that those who broke in were not doing right. And so, of course, to anyone uh, who has any sense of uh, morality and decency as a Christian ought to recognize that is not right. Um, however, I will say the encouraging thing that I have seen from it is how quickly people have been to distance themselves from those who did that and say, that does not represent us. Good. <laughs> um, now, as to why this kind of thing happens, and the answer for it, we're going to wait to talk about that till next week. This week, though, what we're going to do is the same thing that Jesus did when he was asked about a controversy in his day. The same thing that Paul did when he was talking about a controversial issue in his day. Uh, both of those dealing with marriage and saying, what do you do when a husband and a wife can't get along? They're just too different as people. What do you do? Is it okay to just divorce for any and every reason? That was the question. And people had a lot of opinions and all over the place. And the way that Jesus addressed this question, and the way that Paul said this relationship is to uh, is what it's to look like, both of them go back to Genesis 2. And they say, before we even start getting into the particulars of how we live this out today, 
we can't make any headway in this unless first we go back and say, well, what's it supposed to be like? Granted, the way that things are are not the way that it's supposed to be. But before we can make uh, any moves in the right direction, we have to know what is the purpose? What is it supposed to, what is it supposed to be? Uh, G.K. Chesterton talked about years ago how you should not remove a sign. If you come up upon a sign somewhere and you say, I, I don't see that, or no, a fence, that was what it was. Uh, you shouldn't remove a fence without first finding out what the original purpose of it was. And so if you come upon a fence and you're like, this doesn't make any sense to me as to why this is here, let's get rid of it. Then you get rid of it, well, then you'll find out why it was there. <laughs> but that's the hard way to figure it out. And so the first thing you do is you say, there's a fence, I don't understand why it's here. Well, let's go back, see if we can find the people who originally built it and say, why did you build this? What is it for? And if it doesn't serve a purpose, fine, tear it down. If it still does, it better stay up. It's good advice. But it's that going back to the beginning, seeing, understanding what the purpose is. And this is where we come to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 talks about things before sin enters the world. What is it like when you have God and people and creation before sin messes everything up? That's what we're going to look at this morning, and that's uh, what ought to give us uh, some help in understanding uh, not only how things used to be, but also what things are going to be like. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and you fast forward all the way to uh, Revelation and look at some of the things that are going to be the case, there's an awful lot of similarities. Uh, Because these, these things are what are being restored in the end um and as i say we'll get to the messes all that up next week but this is genesis chapter 2 verses well the whole thing no no starting verse 4 that's right verse 4 and going to the end in 25 it says this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the lord god made the earth and the heavens Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, there we go. This is how things look. We're going to go back through this a bit more slowly. Uh, And yet, even saying that, I want to remind you, as we started this series last week, I said that um, we are going to be going through it somewhat quickly. (laughs) Uh, So... We're kind of trying to stay on the path, put some signposts along the way, and not go down every rabbit trail that we could go down and explore. If you want to talk about any of the stuff that we leave unaddressed today or not addressed enough, by all means, contact me. I'd love to talk with you uh, through these kinds of things. But for uh, Sunday mornings, we're just trying to stay on the path and leave that clearly marked of the story that is being told and how that line runs all the way through. And... uh, And so, yeah, there's going to be some stuff we just don't even talk about that is definitely worth talking about. Uh, But what we're going to do is look at uh, at kind of some framework-y things here. So uh, we're going to look at water and people and trees. And then we're going to look at water and people and trees. (laughs) And then... uh, and then we'll look at people some more. And, and the reason why we're doing that, that is how this particular section is set up. Now we open, though, with a verse that starts the whole thing. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And what some people have seen here is, you, you look at Genesis 1 and the creation of the whole world and everything in it, and then they look at this and they say, well, th- these are two different stories. Why do we have two different stories of creation in the Bible? And this verse 4, I think, is a very helpful way of understanding it. If you'll notice, it says, uh, it uses the phrase heavens and earth twice, but it flips it. And so you have first, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, and then uh, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Did you notice that flipping around backwards? Chapter 1 seems like it is more the heavenly perspective. And it's almost like you're getting the view from outside the whole thing, kind of looking in. Chapter 2 is like you are on the ground. Like if you had a camera filming this kind of stuff, this is the camera that's on the ground looking around from there. This is the from earth perspective. So chapter 1, more the from heaven perspective. Chapter 2, more the from earth perspective. I think that's helpful in seeing how these two fit together. Um, to see it that way, and I think that it's verse 4 that gives us that clue that that's what's going on. Now, when we talk about uh, the next structure, we have uh, verses 5 and 6 talks about water and how it hasn't started raining yet, but that there's still water coming up from the ground. That'll be important later. Then in seven, uh, verse 7, we have the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And we talked about uh, 
in chapter 1 how God had created mankind in his own image. And we talked about the idea of this being uh, temple-like language and that God has placed his image in the temple of creation in the same way that someone would place an idol in their temple to represent the God that they worship. But you'll notice that when God creates mankind in his image, one of the things he does is he uh, breathes the breath of life into him because there is no dead thing that can represent a living God. That's important. We'll see that throughout Scripture. That's one of the reasons why he continually says, don't make anything else that's going to represent me. You are to represent me. As living beings, you represent the living God. That is important. We continue. Uh, in verses 8 and 9, it talks about how he places the man in this garden. And uh, this is really where the temple language comes in. He <laughs> places him there and then, uh, and then talks about trees. Like, why in the world are we talking about trees now? That's where we go. It says, all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Um, two kinds of trees, those that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. Interesting. And in the middle, there's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to those as well. So now we have water and people and trees each kind of in brief introduction form. And then he comes back to those same things again. Verses 10 through 14, I think seeing it this way is helpful. Because now 10 through 14 is all about these rivers that are watering all these places we don't know about. And we're like, wow, this seems weird and random. Why are we talking about rivers watering this whole, uh, uh, let's see, the Pishon winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. Who cares? Why are we talking about that? Let's get on with the story here. This section, though, is huge. Uh, talking about uh, the river watering the garden flows from Eden, and there, from there it's separated into four headwaters. What is the purpose of talking about these rivers here? Quick question. Does uh, gravity make things go up or down? Down, <laughs> Right? And so if you have water and it is flowing, is it going to flow from lower to higher? Or is it going to flow from higher to lower? Higher to lower, right? So if you have all these rivers that are watering the entire known world, and that's what those place names are doing, saying winds through this whole region over here and this one over here and this one over here. It's the whole known world. If it's all flowing from Eden to those places, does that mean Eden is higher or lower than all the rest of the world? Higher than the whole rest of the world. That's what's being communicated here. Why? Why does that matter? Well, throughout the entire rest of the Bible, one of the things that you will see is this theme of high places. And the idea being that uh, if you have uh, the heavens above and the earth below kind of thing, that it would be at these high places where heaven and earth overlap. And so it's at these high places where you have people meeting with God. And you see that in things like Moses and the burning bush, which happens on a mountain. You see this with Moses going up on Mount Sinai later uh, to get the Ten Commandments and meeting with God up there and getting the uh, directions for how to construct the tabernacle, all this kind of stuff. It's mountains, on mountains. You see, uh, you see Jesus going up a Mount of Transfiguration where he's 
change at the top of this mountain into uh, where the disciples can see who he is in his heavenly splendor and glory. Mountains and high places are important. And uh, in fact, this is where the psalmist says you know, in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In other words, on the tops of all these hills, people had started putting places to worship various idols and other gods. And so the psalmist looks at that and says, is that where my help comes from? No. Is it from that idol? Is it from that God? Is it that one over there? No, 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 no. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We'll see this theme all the way through the Bible. And in fact, what this is doing is the same kind of thing. It's the same kind of language. Not so much, uh, we're not speaking so much geographically and actual altitude necessarily as we are theologically. It's the same kind of thing we see with Jerusalem itself. If you'll notice throughout the Bible, anytime somebody's going to Jerusalem, they are going up to Jerusalem. And anytime you're going out from Jerusalem, you're going down from Jerusalem. Is that because Jerusalem is the highest place in the world? No. In fact, even if you're going from somewhere that's higher than Jerusalem uh, in actual altitude, you still go up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is, spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, the highest place in the world because it is where God meets with his people through the whole temple system that was, and sacrificial system that was set up in Jerusalem. So, backing back out of all that, we read about these rivers that are flowing from Eden to the whole world. The point is, we're to see this as the place where heaven and earth meet, where God meets with his people. This is why God takes uh, the man that he has formed and he places him in this garden. There is a relationship that is at the heart of this whole thing. And so, yeah, you hear all these river names and they're just weird words and you hear these place names, you're like, I don't know where that is. It's significant that these are uh, here in telling us about the relational aspect between God and his people, this place where heaven and earth overlaps. After we go through uh, all these water things again, then we look at the people things again. And it is uh, that the reason, you know, the reason that God created people is to reflect him, right? To be his image in this world. But there was also stuff for them to do. And it's in doing these things, that's part of how we reflect him. And so what is it that people were supposed to do? In chapter 1, it says, um, verse 26, that God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so then, after he creates them, verse 28, then he blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish and the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, I ask again, what is it that people are supposed to do? It's to rule over, right? to rule over this creation. And, uh, and so then, if we have that in mind, that God, who rules over everything, has put his representatives on the earth to rule over the earth as he rules, then when we get to um, 15, it makes a lot of sense. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is part of what it means 
to rule over the creation, to actually uh, do what we see God doing in chapter one, where he takes the chaos and forms it. And then he takes, you know, so the, what was formless became formed, and what was empty became filled. That's what we saw in chapter one. That's how God was creating. And so it's the same kind of thing. This is what people are to do. This is what's happening in this garden, to uh, work it, to take care of it. And then he says, uh, oh, and then we're back to the, the trees, the water people trees, right? So here we are, the trees again. And he says, Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is foreshadowing. We will see this uh, tree again next week as we get to chapter 3 and how people respond to this uh, particular command. And, and there's a huge theme of trees throughout the Bible. We're not even going to go into it. But, but here we see the freedom that God has given and the provision and the abundance that God has given to his people. You can eat from any of it. Just not that one. And I suspect that the not that one, um, maybe a not that one yet. We'll talk about that more next week as well. Um, but not that one. And then, going back to this idea of people ruling over creation, we get back into the people thing again. And this is where we kind of stay. And this is really the biggest part of this whole thing this morning. It's when God says, uh, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then we have Adam naming all of the creatures of the earth. This is part of that ruling over. Is giving them the names. And, uh, and so as he's to take care of the garden, he's also taking care of these animals. And then it says in uh, verse 20, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So none of these animals, as great as they may be, are that which corresponds to Adam. And so, what's that going to be? Where's that going to come from? And then we have uh, Adam falling into this deep sleep, which also a theme that comes back later. And while he's sleeping, God takes, it uh, says, one of the man's ribs and close up the place with flesh. And Lord God uh, made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. This is a kind of an unfortunate translation because it sounds like what's happening is God is taking like a, a little bit here and then making the woman out of it, which okay, may be. But in the Hebrew, the way that it actually reads is that he took the side of Adam. And, um, and this, is, this is Adam representing all of humanity. And God basically splitting humanity into two. And he has a man and a woman. And this is the way that he has uh, fashioned humanity. And that they, are, they correspond to each other, and they are there to help each other. And what are they there to help each other do? Rule over creation. And they're to do this together in relationship with each other and in relationship with God, right? That's the idea, is that you have... Um, these two halves of humanity now ruling and reigning as God's representatives in this creation. This is how things are supposed to be. Um, 
And this is where, let's talk about a little bit more Hebrew here. When Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Those words sound familiar, like those sound related in English, right? Woman and man. That's kind of where you can accidentally say things like a man and a woman. <laughs> because it does, it sounds uh, like that. However, in Hebrew, those are also related. Uh, the word for man here is ish, and the word for woman here is isha. You hear the connection, right? It's definitely a connection. Ish, isha. Get that. There's another connection that doesn't come through as clearly in English that's in this passage. And this has to do with when uh, it says in verse 7, the, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That word for man, when it says that the Lord God formed a man, That word is Adam. Does that sound familiar? Adam? We say Adam? <laughs> it's the same thing. In fact, it's really tricky for translators to translate into English what's going on here because sometimes it's, it means man and sometimes it means Adam. And which time is which? It's kind of a judgment call because there's sort of a play on words going on and I think sometimes it's supposed to mean both. So how do you translate that? So generally what translators do is they translate it one way and they put a little footnote. But here's the connection, not only between man and Adam, but also between man and ground. It says the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. The word ground is Adama. So that just as we had Ish and Isha for man and woman, now we have Adam and Adama. You hear it? It's very related. <laughs> That there is a connection between man and the earth. That the man comes from the earth. It's like kind of like our word earthling. <laughs> That's the idea. That there is this uh, close connection. And it says that it's created from the dust of the ground. If you look up the word dust throughout the rest of scripture, uh, it shows up all over the place uh, in a lot of different contexts. But one of the way ways that it comes through again and again is this idea of mankind as mortal, that we are going to die. Now, uh, some people talk about people being created immortal, but only because of sin uh, are we mortal. I don't think that's right. I think that we were created mortal. That's part of what the dust is about. However, that's where the trees come in again. And they have access to the tree of life. And God said, you can eat from any of the trees, right? Did he restrict the tree of life? No. And so uh, it seems the idea is that as long as they have access to the tree of life, they have life with God in the presence of God forever. That's the idea. Um, but that it's not a life that comes from themselves. It's something that comes from outside of themselves. Just the same way that God breathed the breath of life into them. Now he sustains their life uh, in this way. We're going to see that change when sin enters the world in chapter 3. And we'll see how that changes. But for now, we look at the way that things are supposed to be. <laughs> that these mortal people who are dependent on God to and have then the capacity to live forever. 
And we see at the end where it says they felt no shame. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is one of those passages that is easy to read over and kind of blush and be like, oh my goodness, we're talking about nudity in the Bible. But it's exactly that that makes this passage stand out, that makes it so strange to us that they were naked and they felt no shame. And this is not a pitch for nudist colonies. That's not what this is about. What this is about is saying that, uh, that Adam and Eve had no shame. Okay, let me say it this way. None of us like to feel ashamed. To have done something wrong, we know we did something wrong, we wish we hadn't done it, we are ashamed, we don't want people to find out. You know the feeling. You hate the feeling, right? We know what that's like. One of the ways that we deal with that is through open confession kind of thing. However, one of the other ways we deal with that is by being incredibly clever self-justifiers. Where we do something wrong, we feel the shame of it coming on, and we very, very quickly try to convince ourselves, yeah, it was actually right. That way I don't have to feel ashamed. You ever recognize that in yourself? If you're paying attention, you probably recognize it. If not, eh, probably just keep on convincing yourself you're doing right, uh, even when maybe you ought to feel ashamed. What's different here is they're not feeling no shame because they've convinced themselves that they're doing right. They feel no shame because they have nothing to be ashamed of. They, this whole being naked and not ashamed, there is, this is a complete vulnerability and openness and transparency and honesty. There's nothing to hide. There's been no duplicity. There's been no backstabbing. There's been no somebody trying to get the other one. And none of that. Everything is out in the open. <laughs> and it's all good. That's uh, where this passage takes us. So here's what we talked about last week. Is that God created everything and everyone. He created them good. He created everything on purpose and he created everything with a purpose. He created it all with his word. Continuing on with that, the main takeaways for this passage to me are that God is personally involved with his creation, that this overlap of heaven and earth is significant, that uh, one of the things that we see as a distinction between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is the way the name of God is used. Go ahead and look through chapter 1, just every time it says God, and you'll see that it just says God, which is kind of generic, the uh, creator God kind of a thing. But when we get to chapter 2, look at every time it says God. And it doesn't just say God. It says the Lord God every time. And that Lord is in all capital letters because that doesn't just mean the Lord. It, if it's in all capital letters in your Bible, that is the way that the English translators have marked out the personal name of God. Because in, uh, in ancient Judaism, it was the idea if we're going to respect God's name, maybe we shouldn't even say it at all. Because then if we don't say it at all, then we don't risk misusing it. There we go. Now we've found a way around uh, that commandment. And so instead, they would just say the Lord when they would get to his name in Scripture. But this is God who reveals himself to us with a personal name. He's not just some God. 
He is the God, and he's the God, the one true God who does relate to his creation personally. So he's not a personal God as in, like, oh, he's my own personal God, and I can just put him in my pocket and take him with me where I go. It's not that. But it's a God who is the all-powerful creator who relates to us personally. That's what we see throughout Genesis 2, that the all-powerful creator God relates to his creation and to his people personally with a name. And with... uh, forming and fashioning uh, personally. Secondly, uh, that his intention for all creation. We talked at the beginning about looking back to this chapter as a way of seeing what things are supposed to be like. And here's what things are supposed to be like, to sum it up, is that God's intention is for people to be in a right relationship with God, with each other, and with all of creation. This is how things are supposed to be. This is how God set it up from the beginning, that people, all humanity, male and female, would be in right relationship with God, with each other, and with all of creation. As we look around today, is that what we see? No. Like I say, we'll get to the reasons for that next week. But every time we see that it's not like this, it ought to break our hearts. This is the way it's supposed to be. And when we then jump to the end and we see what things are going to be like in the end, guess what it is? People of every tribe, tongue, nation, language who are in right relationship with God and with each other and with all of creation. The good news is the way that things are supposed to be from the beginning is that Jesus has done something to fix the problem that broke that. We'll talk about it next week. And he's going to restore it so that at the end, what we have is the goodness that was there from the beginning. So, as we go from here today, be thinking about the way things are supposed to be. Remember our role as representatives of the God who is not only creator, but who relates to us personally. Who has given us good things to do. Who guides us along that way and empowers us uh, by by his word and by his spirit to do good in this world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.